Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Argus Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In the first part of tonight's show, Belfast, the story of a city and its people. And in part two, the crisis of Ulster Unionism and the future of Northern Ireland. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. If you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Belfast, the story of a city and its people. Modern Belfast is a beautiful city with a vibrant tradition of radicalism, industry, architectural innovation and cultural achievement. But the city's many qualities are all too frequently overlooked, its image marred by association with the political violence of the trouble. But a new book tells the story of Belfast, revealing a rich and complex history which is not solely defined by these conflicts. The book is called Belfast, The Story of a City and Its People. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press and I'm delighted to welcome its author, Fergal Cochran to the show tonight. Fergal, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Patrick, and thanks very much for having me on. As you say in your acknowledgements, this was a very personal book for you to write. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, certainly. You know, it did emerge from the fact that I left, uh, you know, I was born in Belfast, grew up there, educated there, and um, I left uh, Northern Ireland in 1998 for an academic post in England. And the irony of that, I think, was that I was leaving just at the point, you know, the, the last thing I did really was vote yes in the referendum on the Good Friday Agreement. And, you know, it seemed to be, a, you know, a, a, an exciting juncture for change and, you know, positivity. Obviously, there's been many bumps on that road. But, um, you know, I spent and I'm, you know, I'm still over in England after several other academic jobs. So... You know, for the last 30 years, you know, I've been writing about Northern Ireland, about divided societies more broadly. And opportunity came up to tell the other side of the story, as well as recognising the divisions and the conflict and the violence. You know, I, I've come up against a lot of sort of lack of understanding of where that sort of come from structurally. So the book was really about trying to add those other dimensions to the story and say, well, it's not just about intolerant people being nasty to each other. There are sort of structural, political and economic reasons as to why people behave and think the way they do. And, of course, that's the same in every society. So it's really come from there. You know, it's come from a a, a desire to communicate about uh, why things were happening in Belfast and people sort of asking me and teaching about it as well, you know, and trying to sort of convey that to, to, a, to a popular audience. And you do show that there's an awful lot more to Belfast than the history of the Troubles and the shadow of the Troubles. And yet the shadow of the Troubles is very powerful in the book. And you also tell a story at the very start about how your favourite toy as a child was a Tommy gun. But in 1969, that was taken off you by your parents who pretended that there was a faulty light or something that needed to get fixed. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, I became a professor of peace studies, so it might be a bit ironic that my favourite toy was a gun. But um, you know, it was it was a fantastic uh, piece of kit. Uh, you know, it had a red sort of bullet chamber, and you know, it sort of lit up and made lots of interesting noises. But of course, the point it was making was that I would have been four then, um, so that would have been 1969. And you know, the point was that it was okay to have a Tommy gun in 1968, but it wasn't so good in East Belfast to be running around with one in 1969 because there were actual real ones emerging off the streets then. So part of the part of the sort of the, the sort of parable there, if you like, was to point out that things that are normal, you know, we all grow up and think we, we live in a normal place. And to me, you know, I did have a, a very happy normal childhood. Um, but around that and you know, just slightly outside the bubble of 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 that safe space, there was mayhem. You know, and and I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to get at in that is that the international reputation of Belfast was just the mayhem, 
But I'm trying to say to say that within that, it's the backdrop a lot of the time, and you get on with being a kid, and you know you get on with playing football and all the rest of it. And are you surprised, or can you understand why Belfast? isn't more uh, widely visited by people, you know, especially outside of Northern Ireland and people down here in the south. Like I've been to Belfast more times than any other city apart from Dublin. I love going to Belfast and I think there's so much uh, in Belfast. But yet I'd say if you were to talk to a lot of people, they may have only been to Belfast once, twice, perhaps never. Absolutely. And, and you know, there are understandable reasons for that. And there was a, you know, I mean, there was a border, obviously, after 1921, but as I'm sure you're very well aware yourself, you know, there's also a mental border as well as a physical. There was a physical border and a existential border that, that grew. And my, my late mother-in-law was from Bray, and, uh, you know, she, I think, went to Northern Ireland twice in her life. So there was that, certainly in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, it was... It was only 100 miles away, but it, it could have been 100,000 miles away because it seemed to be, you know, a completely foreign sort of moonscape to a lot of people in the in the South. And, you know, partly that's what they saw on television. You know, it was a daily diet of uh, bombs and, and, uh, and shooting and violence. And, you know, if you look at the one of the chapters in the book is about tourism and about the fact that, you know, we now have a, a cruise ship industry in Belfast that, raises you know millions for the for the economy the idea when i was a kid that there would be you know um big liners coming up coming up the belfast lock and you know depositing tourists into belfast would be you know we would have laughed if you told us that at the time so tourism obviously went hand in hand the lack of it you know went hand in hand with the the political instability and the violence that was taking place there and you can't really blame people for not coming along but Beyond the actual facts and figures, there was that, that whiff of danger. And it wasn't just in, in, in Ireland either. It was also in Britain. And again, going back to my, you know, my, my, 30, my, my, my uh, 25-year stint over here, uh, you know, there was, there's a definite sort of dis- disconnect, even though Belfast is, is technically in the United Kingdom um, and, and, very, and rightfully for a lot of unionists. Um, living over here, they can't, you know, you go to the post office, and they can't really work out whether Northern Ireland or the Irish Republic is the foreign one. You know, they're, you know, the sort of, you know, they just have to go by, you know, special, special postage stamps. They know Belfast is in the United Kingdom. So there is a, you know, there's a disjuncture there, I think, amongst uh, um, people. But that is changing, and it's changing because the peace process and the political stability and the investment and the hotels. You know, it's all on the rise. And just to finish on this, I went into uh, Titanic Belfast, the museum there, a few years ago. It would have been, you know, probably 2015-ish. And every car in the car park was from the Republic. Every one of them. Every, and, you know, and again, we used to, it was a, it was a red letter day when we saw a, a car from the south in Belfast. You know, it was very rare in the 1970s. Um, it isn't rare now. That's partly due to the roads and infrastructure, but it's also due to the fact that it's now a more attractive, there's more or, a more organic connection going on. The book is the story as well of how a village became a town and then became a city. And it is an extraordinary story, as you show, as rags to riches and so many twists and turns in its evolution. Can we go back to the beginning? Because you you situate Belfast very well in terms of the geography and uh, the River Lagan and uh, uh, McCart's Fort and even how it got its name, you know, the mouth of the sandbar, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we quite often, you know, when we're going about our business, we rarely say to ourselves, why, you know, why is this city here in the first place? And that was one of the points that I sort of started with, really, which is, you know, why Belfast? And there is a whole political ecology there, and it's the same for every city. And you'll find that a lot of cities, Dublin being another perfect example, you know, they're on rivers for a reason. Uh, they're on rivers because there weren't any roads. And, you know, you could use boats and rivers to trade and also drink fresh water and get, uh, you know, food and trees to build shelters and so on. So, absolutely, you know, Belfast was, I mean, there's sort of an irony there in that there was a political ecology in that Belfast was in between. It had it had hills on one side that provided protection for people and it had access to the sea on the other. So Belfast is, you know, this sort of crucible 
uh, in between the you know Cave Hill and the hills, and also uh, Belfast Lock and the and the sea. And you know you'll find a lot of cities are nestled in that sort of way. But another reason why it's where it is is because it was strategically important for the English as a military base uh, for for similar reasons. Um, you know access to the sea. And of course, the river networks, and the, you mentioned there, you know, um, the naming of the place, which is Belfastia, um, uh, which is connected with the Farset River. And this was one of the things I sort of drew in the book, really, which is without the Farset, Belfast would not exist. Certainly, wouldn't exist as a city. You know, it was fundamental to the linen industry, uh, fundamental to shipbuilding as well, fundamental to the cotton trade. Um, and it's now invisible. It's been covered over almost completely. And if you're walk- if you've been to Belfast, you've probably walked over it, but you won't know it. Um, and to me, that was almost like a, a metaphor for the history of the city itself, in that a lot of it is covered up, covered over, forgotten. And you know, mouth of the sandbar was quite a literal um, sort of description of the place. But you know, it's it without the far set, without the the lagging, and without the, the Blackstaff River. Belfast would not have become a city. And without the English, ironically, wanting to set up as a strategic hub, it wouldn't have been invested in. It wouldn't have been given resources. And, uh, you know, Sir Arthur Chichester uh, was was the guy who sort of put it on the map, literally. He was a very interesting, quite fruity character, uh, sort of nicknamed Belfast Blackadder. And he spent a lot of his time killing people. And we've named a lot of the streets after him. So, you know, that's a, that's a sort of an interesting irony in the, the, the fact that it exists and the reason it exists. And lots of cities are like this. You know, they're, they're um, carved into existence and a lot of people fall by the wayside as a result. You have a wonderful chapter on radicalism and that is something that we would associate with Belfast, especially in that late 18th century period when you have the influence of the American and French revolutions, the United Irishmen, you know, the 1798 rebellion, that it was a very, it was a fascinating time politically, but a very exciting time, very dangerous time and and a very radical time. Absolutely. I mean, um, it was rarely again remarked upon that you know, the first nationalists were actually Protestants. Again, this is one of the ironies. Of, you know, if you just look at, you know, the 12th of July and so on, it's it's seen as very much a, a British unionist Protestant um, sort of festival. But Protestants in Belfast, Presbyterians in Belfast, at the end of the uh, 18th century, were actually nationalist Republicans, militant Republicans eventually. Uh, but of course, there were, there were divisions in there. So, yes, that's also about trying to, again, sort of, recalibrate our understanding of unionism, nationalism, um, the you know, the home rule, the extension into the home rule era, in that it wasn't just a binary division. And and you know, there were very good reasons why Presbyterians became interested in self government. One of those was intellectual. You know, they became very attracted by Thomas Paine and uh, John Locke and the Enlightenment. But they also wanted they also became very wealthy on the back of the linen, you know, the linen trade and the uh, the linen mills. And they wanted to, you know, in the, in the sort of the jargon, walk the talk of, of, of their enlightened capitalism. So their view was that, OK, they were getting wealthy, but they didn't have access to political power to uh, change things and change society. So they did things like you know, trying to promote literacy, um, uh, promoted uh, Catholic emancipation, uh, paid for the first Catholic church in Belfast uh, through, you know, philanthropy, uh, established uh, poor houses, and you know, one of one of the one of the key uh, Presbyterian radicals, Mary Ann McCracken. She was a feminist before the word feminism was ever heard of, uh, and an anti-slaver, uh, you know, abolitionist. Uh, they were very much into social reform uh, as as well as, as political change. And, you know, that story, again, is one that probably isn't as well known as it probably should be. And, you know, we're only now really getting... Uh, you know, Henry Joy McCracken was executed in the city centre, and you wouldn't know it if you're walking around Belfast city centre. There's no monument to him. Uh, one of the most famous people uh, in Belfast whole history. 
And I explain there are reasons why some things are remembered and some things are forgotten. And we're, we're slowly, I think, rediscovering some of these uh, individuals. And what happened to that radicalism in the 19th century? Did it change or uh, turn into... Because it seemed to have turned into different forms of activity and political activity, but uh, wouldn't necessarily be identified in the same way as it was. No, well, I suppose the, the bubble burst, you know, the bubble of the French Revolution burst. And, you know, from looking adoringly at the, at the French Revolution, they started looking horror at the, the violence that was perpetuated after it. So there was a whole range of reasons. One was um, the ideals of, um, of, of political change came up against the realities of uh, militant uh, resistance and insurrection. Uh, that insurrection was put down brutally by the British Army and the British government. Um, also, it, it, some of them were encouraged through reforms. Uh, so, you know, the position of the Presbyterian community was uh, eased. You know, they were discriminated against by by the uh, by the British government and by the um, Irish Parliament and. They were reforms were brought in that allowed the Presbyterian community to make their peace with the establishment. Uh, so, so the sort of the more moderate element of the Presbyterian community started to get frightened by revolution and started to think, well, do we really need this? Because reforms are happening that look very good, uh, you know, in terms of grants and and access to uh, you know full citizenship and things like that. So. A large section of them became very wary of the realities of of, of revolution. The uh, um, 1798 rebellion was uh, was a failure militarily, obviously, um, but it had failed before it even happened. And a lot of that Presbyterian enthusiasm, you know, it 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 did, it, it it stopped at at the point of insurrection, uh, and also the realities of Catholic participation. An insurrection frightened a lot of Presbyterians, even those who, as you can see in the book, you know, are very literate, very well informed. You know, they were uh, were starting to um, complain and, and, and worry about uh, the fact that Protestants were getting massacred by Catholics as part of this sort of struggle for liberation. So that obviously put them off. So it was a combination of military failure. A changing a change in political a sense of what what was in their political self interest, um, and and yeah, their their sort of efforts turn more to uh, less about the constitutional issue and political change and more into commerce uh, and into things like you know uh, focus on on sort of religion on temperance societies and things like that. You know, their efforts went into more civic activities rather than. Um, constitutional change sort of focus. You also have a chapter on shipbuilding and of course you know you've mentioned the linen mills and that's an important part of the economy a huge part of the story as well but you know we do associate Belfast I suppose linen is one big part of the, the story of the economy but shipbuilding is, is such a powerful part of the identity now with the Titanic Quarter and the museum and everything there and uh, tell us about Harland and Wolf and how Belfast became this shipbuilding powerhouse. Absolutely. Well, again, you know, one of the one of the reasons I actually started writing the book was, you know, reflecting back on my own childhood, and and I was brought up in a house with a fantastic back garden. It was built by my dad, who was an architect, directly just with his own hands when he got married, and he rented uh, the ground off the estate of Gustav Wolf. So it was actually, I think, it was. Obviously, the, the house that Gustav Wolf lived in, you know, it long changed hands since then. But I think our back garden was his croquet lot at one point. And, you know, so that's how close I was to the to, to Harlem Wolf Cranes and, and the shipyard. And lots of people in my street worked in the shipyard. So absolutely, you know, not just the Titanic, but the whole uh, industrial revolution. You know, it, it, the, the linen industry was like a launch pad for the beginning of the shipbuilding industry. And it began relatively slowly, but you know, again, it was it was entrepreneurism. Uh, it was the fact that there was already a base there of manufacturing that the shipbuilding industry was able to sort of harness. Uh, and again, one of the stories about about the shipyard is that it was it was 
broadly, almost exclusively, you know, it was Protestants who built the ships. Um, apprenticeships were handed down, uh, you know, from father to son. And uh, there were occasions where, where, where Catholics were also in the shipyard, but there was a lot of tensions in the shipyard driven by you know, political instability outside. So the shipyard is more than just about building ships. You know, it's, it's like a cultural and political uh, crucible uh, in which you can see wider themes uh, from, from about what was happening in Northern Ireland at the time. And that goes into the cultural realm as well with uh, certain plays and poets poems and so on have been written about it but you know it you know that i suppose that titanic you know was the sort of the 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 moonshot uh in terms of the the impact of uh the harlem Wolf shipyard in fact there were two shipyards in belfast there was uh, the wee yard as well so you know shipbuilding was huge uh the titanic and other massive ocean liners you know really put belfast on the map as a as a real center central central point for shipbuilding globally and uh, that's you know obviously with this you know obviously people say well you know you based your culture on a, on the most famous ship that's ever sank apart from Noah's Ark but um, people in Belfast would say well it was fine when it left um, you know uh, but um, that sort of cultural impact of the Titanic has also then now ironically enough it's come back again you know to help brand Belfast in the 21st century and you know the Titanic Museum, Titanic Belfast is an incredible uh, exhibition, and uh, you know it, it. It you know it does it it, it, it does give a real sense of uh, of the people who built the ships, uh, the effort that it took, and um, the dan- the dangers of working there as well. And something I hadn't known was that Harland and Wolf was actually in a bit of trouble before it won the commission to to construct the Titanic. Yes, I mean it was a very much a, um, a, a boom and bust industry, and you know the order book at times uh, was very was very low. If the order book is full and there's full employment, um, people are going to be less worried about uh, you know who's who's doing who's building these ships. But when you're worried about being laid off, and you know being laid off there meant you starved. Uh, that's when people start getting more insecure. It was very much a boom and bust industry, not just for the Titanic, but through all of its uh, history. And of course, wars were incredibly useful for the shipbuilding industry, and really, you know, helped uh, Harlan and Wolf in the in the twentieth century really go to huge sort of levels of employment. But the, if you look at the employment levels there, you know, they, it, it was certainly a very much an up and down situation. Well, we're talking history and tonight we are exploring the history of Belfast. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to author Fergal Cochran about the troubles, tourism and the future of Belfast. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and we're continuing our exploration of Belfast. I'm delighted to be rejoined by Fergal Cochran, the author of Belfast, the story of a city and its people. Fergal, you do have a chapter on the Troubles, but what I think is uh, really significant is you also have chapters on the poetry, the tourism, the future, that you're not allowing Belfast and its story to be defined simply by that conflict. Well, absolutely. And um, part of that probably came from the fact that I've been teaching about conflict for 30 years and I find myself increasingly showing uh, students poems and films and television programs because one of the points I tried to make when I was doing my teaching and this suppose comes from a sort of philosophical position is that conflict isn't just about events it's also you know conflict and divided societies you can see the divisions very vividly uh, in art and in the arts, and uh, some in, in some cases, you know, say a, you know a picture paints a thousand words. Well, quite often poems will do the same and get to the essence of divisions and the reasons why um, violence happens uh, more understandably than uh, putting uh, putting up a political agreement in your appendix uh, of of the book. So. I suppose the point I was trying to make, and I do make really throughout the book, is that the political division and the sort of the, the latent violence is an ever is a constant. So as a child, for instance, and I think I say this in the book, 
you know, you become very aware of not giving away your identity because that could result in a hiding. And this would be the same for Catholics and Protestants. And it would be the same in every divided society. You become very careful about your language, uh, what you're wearing, even what sporting equipment you might be carrying. Uh, because, again, those are uh, proxies for your religion or your ethnicity and, by extension, your political position or, or what is what is assumed to be your political position. So, yes, there's a chapter, obviously, on the Troubles because... You know, because uh, you know, I'm certain the book doesn't run away from that, but it tries to position what happened by saying that actually the troubles are seen as a sort of a at this juncture, a dislocation. But my point is that it's actually a point of continuity. Um, there were there have been troubles since partition. There were troubles before partition as well, and it's the latest, I suppose, eruption of the of the of the divisions. Uh, within the society. And again, you know, I'm, the book is trying to sort of communicate that um, Belfast isn't full of unreasonable people doing unreasonable things. There's certainly some unreasonable people there, but they are shaped by the political, economic and cultural structures that they live within. And that's the same in every place, of course. So, yes, there's a chapter on the troubles, there's a chapter on poetry. And I remember a poet saying about a fellow poet that poets are actually like weather vanes or barometers. They can, you know, they don't just write about what's happened. Obviously, they do that, but they don't just write about that. They also write about what's going to happen. And and I, that struck me as very interesting. And again, Seamus Heaney is obviously uh, a major feature of of the book and of, of that chapter. And you know his first anthology came out, I think, just before the the trouble started, and you know the death of a naturalist, and uh, almost predicted through his nature metaphors, uh, mud grenades, you know, flying around, and and um, you know, the, uh, to me, it struck me as very interesting that that it, the arts aren't just you know they're not just taking photographs and sort of holding a mirror up, they're also interpreting. And all sometimes acting as a safety valve for our frustrations, um, and sometimes predicting, and sometimes providing hope about the future. So that's why poetry's in there. I had wondered about you know getting other forms of art, and there's secular film there as well. But I would have you know maybe maybe the next time you know I'll, I'll write about music and other artistic forms, but. Poetry was the one I really went for. It's great that Belfast is doing so well in terms of tourism and that there's so many who travel partly things to do with the city, partly things to do with maybe Titanic or Game of Thrones because uh, a portion of it shot there. Do you have any concerns about what some call, you know, the dark tourism or conflict tourism and the, you know, the, the interest in the gorier details of the troubles and visiting sites relating to that? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's that it's, Essential, I think, in a you know, in a, in a sort of post-conflict economy, um, tourism is an essential part of that. And um, one of the benefits, if you like, of the peace process and and the Good Friday Agreement is that tourism in Northern Ireland is now integrated with Irish tourism, broadly speaking, and that's only that can only be a good thing. Um, but it's a sensitive area um, because um, we get dark tourism. Or war tourism everywhere. Uh, certainly, you know, Dublin's full of it as well. Uh, but um, time is a critical factor here. And I think um, in Dublin, uh, you know, there's been, you know, 100 years, there's been a significant time lapse, I think, for some of the sensitivities of how you remember the past to uh, maybe not be as viscerally dividing as in Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, the conflict is so recent, we're all still sort of traumatised by it. So there is, I think, a tightrope to be walked here. And on the one side, tourism is financially helpful to the economy. It's helpful to you know the international reputation, if you like, the external reputation of the place, place branding, if you want to sort of use the jargon. Um, it's beneficial in terms of education. You know, of, of us understanding ourselves or helping people understand um, the place and its history. 
Um, but on the other side of that tightrope, you know, is exploitation, is voyeurism, is are we, you know, luridly focused on death sites? Uh, and there is certainly that element to it. And some people have criticised the fact that, you know, there's um, you know, people sort of going around looking at sites where massacres happened. Now, that's because they heard about them on the news. And, of course, that's interesting. And I think if that if it was that on its own, uh, you know, that would be concerning. But people are also now, you know, being brought not just to the old war, the sort of paramilitary wall murals, and that's obviously a key tourist interest, but also to uh, to the street art, you know, which is now much more um, culturally diverse. And you know, there are walking tours of public art displays in the cathedral quarter and elsewhere that are fantastic. There's some fantastic wall murals there. And of course, some of the old wall murals are fantastic as well. So there needs to be a balance. And I think that certainly a lot of the um, tourist uh, providers you know, are aware of that balance. And, and, you know, it's a, but it's one that we need to keep our eye on uh, because it's highly political. What do you remember or what do you leave off the tour is, is, is a highly political act. You know, and 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 people have, are are sort of still worried about about how that plays out. You write that Belfast is a city in transition. What do you see as the future of the city? Well, it, absolutely, it is. Um, and you can see that through the demography. I mean, the first nationalist mayor of, of, of Lord Mayor of Belfast was 1997. There hadn't been one before 1997, and Alban McGuinness, the SDLP, was made Lord Mayor of Belfast. And now, you know, you've got Sinn Féin and SNP mayors regularly. So the demography has changed. And that's affecting, I think, um, the sort of the, an awful lot of the of the way in which the city is being, is, is thinking about itself. So the peace process is obviously a massive element in that, as certainly as I see it. Uh, and that is not without its problems, as everybody will know. So it's in transition, I think, broadly speaking, it's going in the right direction. It's, you know, when I, and, and, and part of the reason there's so much of my biography in the book is to try and demonstrate that, again, when I was a child, there was no tourist industry. Nobody lived in the city centre because it was too dangerous. Uh, it would have been seen as a punishment rather than, you know, a, 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 rather than a, a reward. So today, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a buoyant tourist industry in Belfast. We are now, even though we're, Still not able to properly deal with our past. Uh, we are tiptoeing towards it. Uh, we are starting to look at uh, ways of um, remembering that are inclusive, and there are some examples of that happening. Um, you know, but it's it's still a point of sensitivity. But um, I think, uh, to me, if the if the, if the political institutions uh, can be restored, and I think that's really a fundamental point. Uh, if the political institutions are restored, I think that um, Belfast will, you know, move forward m- in a much more uh, faster speed than if its political institutions uh, disintegrate. And I, I wouldn't rule that out from happening. Uh, that you know, the, the political agreement here will will collapse. Uh, and if that happens, you know, transitions will be an awful lot slower. But one of the points of transition is, you know, is, is not just about Belfast, but Northern Ireland, broadly speaking, post-Brexit, you know, what's its constitutional future? And I think that's, that's a question that's now being asked um, a bit more actively. Uh, and of course, that's going to affect everybody in the whole island. Well, we will watch with interest and it's a fascinating story told so well in this new book, Belfast, the story of a city and its people. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press and delighted that its author Fergal Cochran was able to join me tonight for such an extended discussion. Fergal, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Patrick, for having me. We'll take another quick break now. When we come back, we'll be broadening our look by exploring the story and the history of Ulster and the future of Northern Ireland. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. The fissures that have split the United Kingdom in the last decades have run through Northern Ireland. Since the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, the fragile peace has been threatened by Brexit, 
the rise and fall of the DUP and the failure of the power sharing arrangements between the main parties at the Stormont Assembly. And a new book offers an insightful history of Ulster unionism from the 1960s to the present day with the provocative title The Twilight of Unionism, Ulster and the Future of Northern Ireland. It's published in paperback by Verso and I'm delighted to welcome the author Geoffrey Bell to the show tonight. Geoffrey, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick. Let's begin, I suppose, with that uh, title of uh, The Twilight of Unionism. Do you feel that unionism in Northern Ireland is in decline and is it terminal? Well, I think it is. I mean, I think if you look at whichever way you actually look at it, but, you know, in terms of the sort of votes it receives, in terms of its clarity of, you know, political future, in terms of its sort of leadership, I think, uh, I think quite Quite clearly, it's been it's been going on for some time now. I mean, the sort of book itself was sort of finished um, about this time last year, I suppose. You know, well, I did the first draft, and then since then, of course, we've had the various sort of election results, which have which have showed for the first time that the um, that sort of unionism is now a minority tradition within uh, Northern Ireland in terms of popular votes. So I think. Um, I think the sort of events, if you like, have since the book was uh, published have actually proved that um, things are not in a good way for sort of unionism at the moment, and that is a trend which is likely to sort of carry on. I mean, if you just, if you look at the figures, I mean, when I was growing up in sort of Northern Ireland in the sort of, the sort of 1960s, the old uh, unionist party were winning 65, 70% of the vote, you know, and look at it now, you know, it doesn't, the sort of total sort of unionist vote um, uh, barely touches 40%. So I think I think these are trends which are historical trends, but trends which have been exacerbated, if you like, by recent events. So demography is a factor, but are all these uh, political failures of recent years, and I suppose the political neglect uh, that's in evidence as well when you see how uh, something like Brexit played out. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think Brexit played out. I mean, Brexit played out in sort of various ways, but um, I think once again, it um, it sort of basically shows the whole unionist premise, if you like, or the whole Northern Ireland unionist premises that they can depend on Britain, that they can rely on Britain, and so on and so on, has been a false. Uh, premise and has been for sort of for sort of some some uh, time, if you like. And, and Northern Ireland is the last thing they sort of think about, you know, when they when they when they uh, organise things like Brexit. You know, I think that just is this is sort of uh, shown the total indifference, if you like, um, the uh, leadership of the British state and indeed most of the sort of population here uh, feel towards uh, Northern Ireland and its future. If we go back in time to the 1960s, what do you think was the was different there in terms of Ulster unionism and how it evolved in the decades after that? Well, I think I think they did. The, I mean, and sort of many ways, Northern Ireland was kept in a sort of time warp. You know, the whole settlement of 1921, the whole building of you know what others have called the uh, the Orange State, if you like, in which the Protestant population as a whole were given privilege. They were very marginal privileges, you know, but they were given privileges. They had their own police force. The Orange Order could march where they wanted. The Union Jack was always flying, so on and so on. They had their sort of culture. There was no question of the Irish language, you know, being on the streets of sort of Northern Ireland. So they had this stable privileged, ascendancy-like almost, uh, society and sort of culture until, of course, it was challenged by the uh, civil rights movement and, and that's, when, that's when unionism was basically incapable, incapable of, of sort of um, plotting a way forward for itself or for sort of Northern Ireland. And it was always saying no, it was always trying to defend what was really the indefensible, and um, leaders who sort of challenged this, like most famously David David Trimble, for example, 
were actually overthrown um, when they did uh, finally try to challenge this. So the whole thing, it didn't have a um, a way forward, a progressive way forward, something which which could appeal both to liberal Protestants and even the sort of you know uh, those within the Catholic uh, population who are sort of willing to look for a sort of different future. Basically, the sort of unions have had nothing to offer uh, either of these groups. And when you look at something like the Good Friday Agreements, why did that lead to the to the decline of the Ulster Unionist Party and the the rise of the DUP to being the dominant uh, political unionist political party in Northern Ireland? Uh, was that inevitable, just as a as a consequence and, and a side effect of it, or uh, what was going on there? Because you see something similar happen with the SDLP. Well, I mean, I think I think the I mean the the, the SDLP. Uh, fall was somewhat uh, different because Sinn Féin, of course, um, were supporters of the Good Friday uh, Agreement, whereas the DUP was not. And although the referendum uh, within the Protestants uh, was sort of 50% in favour of the uh, of uh, the Belfast Agreement. Um, that support gradually declined as uh, ramifications of the Good Friday Agreement. Things like the, you know, reform, the so-called reform of the RUC, which in fact was the disbandment of the RUC. Uh, things like uh, um, the Orange Order couldn't march where they where they had been marching for. Uh, you know, years and years and years. Things like the whole Orange State uh, was actually tackled in forms of discrimination in jobs and housing. And sort of all this sort of shattered the uh, the old world um, of many within the, the uh, unionist camp. And the DUP, you know, said, this must stop and this must stop. And, and of course, they opposed uh, the GFA, and 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 so gradually their views uh, reflected in many ways what a sizable number of unions were sort of thinking within within sort of Northern Ireland. I mean, if the sort of DUP hadn't been there, somebody would have come along with sort of very sort of similar views, and 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 you know made this traditional call for, you know, Ulster must stay as it is. We don't want these changes. We don't want reforms and so on and so on. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the way Northern Ireland's been sort of going for the last 60 years, which was the central message of the sort of DUP and, 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 and sort of still is in sort of many ways. And, and obviously other organisations, you know, too, like the Orange Order and things like that, you know. How significant have been the changes in the south of Ireland, the fact that uh, the Catholic Church has been and is in decline, the fact that uh, you have had referendums on marriage equality and repealing the Eighth Amendment and so on, and it seems a more liberal, pluralist society in the south. Has that made the south more attractive or has there been, and has that contributed to this decline of unionism? I think it has, yes. I think it has uh, because... For the first, I mean, there is this, if you like, a minority tradition within the Protestants in Northern Ireland, um, you know, which is a more uh, uh, liberal or even radical one. Uh, and previous to uh, all these changes you've just sort of mentioned, they would never think of you know, joining the South or looking to the South or trying to build a all-Ireland society, if you like. But now all these things have sort of happened. These these sorts of people. I mean, I don't think you know it, it accounts for fifty percent of the sort of Protestants or nothing. But you know, but are significant people, the people who voted uh, against Brexit and so on and so on. I mean, these these sorts of people, I think, are are now looking uh, to the uh, to the south as maybe uh, somewhere where they could join and. Uh, build a new Ireland. Obviously, changes still have to take place, and sort of all this. But the old sort of bogeyman of you know Rome, Rome rule, and so and sort of so on and so on, which again made made sort of Paisley uh, the sort of person he was, so to speak. You know, I mean, all this is gone. So I think, I think, I think, in sort of many ways, 
what has happened in the South has certainly weakened the whole sort of unionist cause because they don't have this, this sort of uh, devil that they get sort of like they sort of used to have, you know. So what do you think then is the future of Northern Ireland? Is it as as part of some future, is it is it within the United Kingdom? Is it uh, as part of a United Ireland? Is it uh, with the creation of some new federal state maybe on the islands or some new political structure? Yeah, I mean, I think, I I don't think it is within the sort of uh, uh, British state. I mean, I think I think there are sort of a number of reasons for that. I mean, one of them, as I've said, I mean, the British state doesn't actually want them sort of anymore. You know, I mean, let me give you sort of an example I sort of use in the book. I mean, and 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 in the sort of the Ulster, Ulster crisis between 1912 and 1914, Edward Carson spoke at a meeting in uh, Hyde Park of between 300 and 400,000 people came to hear him in sort of London, you know. Uh, the leader of the, uh, of the DUP came today and tried to stage a sort of, you know, similar meeting in sort of London. You know, he would attract 50, 60 people, you know. I mean, that's, so that's that's the, the, the all the polls and all the interests of the state show that Britain basically doesn't want Northern Ireland anymore. So Northern Ireland is is to an extent a failed project. So the question does come, you know, um, where does it go from on if it can't depend on Britain as Brexit showed, uh, if it can't, if it doesn't have the same sort of support amongst the British British population, where does it go? So, I mean, that's the you know. That's the big sort of question. I mean, whether it, uh, it, 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 it is going into a period of joint governance with, uh, with the sort of South now, if, if uh, power sharing doesn't have come, come back, that's a possibility. But, I mean, the longer-term future, I would say, it has to be in some sort of new structure within Ireland itself because basically it's sort of nowhere else to go. And whether that's some sort of federal state or uh, some other sort of uh, formulation, then, then, then I think I think you know it, it, it is it is now getting and again the opinion polls show that there's now an acceptance within ten twenty years that there will be some form of uh, United Ireland, and I think and, and, and I think you know I mean I think if, if you if you take the obvious sort of opportunities which the sort of unionist population would actually have within that or being, you know, 25, 30% of that state, then they would have an awful lot more sort of, you know, power than they have within the sort of British state at the moment. So hopefully those those messages would get across. I mean, Alex Kane, who's the uh, a very liberal sort of unionist writes today in the Irish news when he says Northern Ireland is uh, is on the brink, you know, and uh, uh, on the edge, tottering, tottering on the edge. And I think that's that is that that is now so sort of obvious that that that, that it's sort of very neat state. And I think what sort of can be added to that is it's the sort of Northern Ireland project as a whole which is which is sort of on the edge and not just sort of unionism you know Earlier tonight I was talking to Fergal Cochrane about his new book about Belfast and we chatted about the radical tradition within uh, Northern Protestantism and I think that's significant as well when we consider the future of Northern Ireland Yeah I mean you know I mean I, 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 I as, as you may know I come from uh, uh, what a sort of Protestant sort of a Protestant Belfast tradition, if you like, and I mean, I was always encouraged by my parents to not to, to sort of think uh, for myself, so to speak, you know. And and, and um, there are some more more of us than you know people sort of think. I mean, the sad thing is, and I could I do lots of talks with them uh, uh, in uh, in of Britain. And the sad thing is, I meet lots of young Protestants uh, who are at college or. Uh, and uh, various places, and they all say they're never going back. You know, so I mean, there is that there that 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 there's this young uh, tradition now of sort of Protestants who are very disillusioned and uh, without with what's going on within North Ireland. But there is this, I think, the growth of things like the Alliance Party shows that. There is indeed a a reemergence of this Protestant tr- 
tradition, which is which is one which goes back a long, long way. You know, I mean, after all, Irish republicanism was sort of founded by a group of Belfast Presbyterians. You know, so so it 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 it, it, it is. It is, it is something which is worthwhile exploring and uh, talking about and saying, well, there is this uh, minority tradition within uh, Protestants which is, which is worth thinking about and that's which is worth learning from. So, Geoffrey, given that there is so much talk of uh, the future of Northern Ireland, the future of uh, the political, I suppose, uh, arrangements on the island, what do you think is the timeline? How soon or how likely is this to happen? I mean, the I would have thought, you know, that that uh, that it is likely to happen, you know, within. I think the current estimate within within sort of ten to sort of twenty years. I mean, a lot does depend on what happens within Britain and the British state, and and uh, I mean, I mean, it's a very it's a very conservative state, so they will need pushed, if you like to do things like hold a referendum. And it has to be one which is prepared for in advance. I mean, and I think the important thing really is is, 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 is for members of the Protestant uh, population and sort of Northern Ireland to start sort of talking about, to start talking about, well, what sort of Ireland would we sort of like to see? And maybe they will come the conclusion that they don't want to see an all Ireland, but at least talk about it, you know, at least talk about what type of society they would sort of like to build, you know, uh, within a reconfigured Northern Ireland and 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 sort of whether that uh, whether or not it would be it would, it would be more advantageous for them to sort of build that type of society within sort of Ireland as a whole. So I would say you, you, you know you can I mean this is dependent on sort of many things which you can never be sure is going to happen but certainly within sort of 10 to sort of 20 years I would say that some new form of uh, settlement with an all-Ireland umbrella would, will, will, will sort of take place. So lots of future debates for us here on Talking History as we get ready for that as well. Well, my thanks to Geoffrey Bell for rounding off the show tonight. His new book is The Twilight of Unionism, Ulster and the Future of Northern Ireland, published in paperback by Verso. The author there, as I say, Geoffrey Bell. And Geoffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you much for having me. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.